0: It's tech, it's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.
1: opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left? Well, we know who the hard it's left so. are. We're in the you know, ascendancy I mean, within, the, within the Labour, Labour Party way. who associate with the hard left. You just said so that we were right, to right wing the hard left agenda. Printing money, nationalisation without compensation, hard left wing position, hard left, hard left, the hard left, 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 hard hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, hard hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, hard hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, hard hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, hard hard hard
2: left, hard left, left, hard, 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 hard,
1: Thanks for coming on the show, Tim. That's wonderful, yeah. We've had some pretty fire content so far from yeah. you. So this is literally the first time you've told a lot of people about a lot of your experiences in Mexico,
0: really. Yeah, I mean, apart from, like, when I was actually vlogging <laughs> there, you go to the pub with your friends or other correspondents. I mean, the thing is, like, we're such fucking nerds that we never really switch off. Even when you're socialising, you're like... No, man, yeah. You know, it's the same for you guys about, about like, all the stuff happening in England, you know? When you're a news junkie, you just start, you know? I got plans to do a book about Guatemala. Oh, nice man, okay. It'll be about a pagan saint like a syncretic uh, okay fair play yeah, yeah it's a mixture of like it's um, not It's it's, non-fiction. it's a, a saint called Maximon, man he was That's like nice. um, a mixture of Mayan and Christian beliefs and he's uh, very dear to the more marginalised communities in Guatemala he's about the only thing a lot of those marginalised communities have in common as well so it's a great way to write about it. forgotten Central America I worked That's last year with uh, Sandra Sebastian who's a brilliant crime reporter in Guatemala and she and I have just been to the links about this saint back and forth obsessively for months, so we're like, we'll have to finally do this story next year. <laughs> that, that, that's one plan. But other than that, I mean, you know, I, I don't know, I've never lived in England before. Never, I've barely been here before, like, it's a pretty weird place. No, it's so good, like, I mean, I got my vape and my. I had a Kenko Milicano about an hour and a half ago. Going so good. Nice. That sounds
3: fire. Cheech and Chong socialism.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, actually. I, I fucking love those guys <laughs>
3: right? That's what I'm all about really Cheech and Chong socialism yeah,
0: I mean well We've had Broke is champagne socialism Woke is Hash and vape socialism like. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah this, this is what it's all about Have you sworn off the trees With your um, You know With giving up Yeah Getting thought, fucked up in general
0: Yeah I mean I can I can talk about that Because um, I've clean about two and a half years now uh, Okay I quit everything Quit. I quit The 20... 4th of September, 2014, which is about two days before the 43 students were disappeared.
3: So was this when you were in Mexico? Yeah, it was,
0: yeah. So I moved to Mexico June 9th, 2013. I was there a year and a half, and then I got sober. And then my career kind of took off after that, to be honest with you before that oh I mean what a coincidence
3: yeah (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) like just a totally unrelated set of events
0: correlation is causation apparently yeah Uh, no there's a total no question but uh, I think it was also just this this sense of like shit just got really fucking serious the night that those students disappeared for everybody I mean at that point things have been going pretty badly for the country for six or seven years but even so like that was a fucking watershed like yeah how blatant it was and how far up the cover-up went they said that 43 students were there's the 42 guys were, were burned in a dump which i visited jesus christ I visited it six weeks after it happened the place was fucking green like. we were with a deer hunter from the locality and um the deer hunter said to us the night that this was alleged to have happened 26 September 2014 the night this was supposed to have happened was a rainy as fuck in this area how the fuck he can start even a campfire, if it's very spot. First off. Second off, the access road from the town of Kokula to the dump just outside Kokula, near Iguala, where the students were picked up by the municipal police, elements of organised crime, and possibly also the army, allegedly. The access road to the dump from Kokula has like a V dip in it, like it's a dip. The road goes straight across, dives down. Right? a metre and a half, goes back up, continues on to dump. It was fucking flooded. I like. it was flooded. Like. There was no way any kind of vehicle could have gotten past it, let alone a vehicle. Uh, a magic hypothetical vehicle proposed by the Attorney General. It's a magic hypothetical vehicle which could contain 43 people. Um, so, so, it's what? massive cover-up, because basically they said that all these guys were burned in this in this dump. They never said how they knew that these guys were burned in the dump. They never said, the prosecutor, the attorney general of Mexico, never said how they knew that this theory was the case. 43 normalistas, yeah. You think the,
3: the, student, the students were picked up
0: by the army? Look, at all points in that direction, I'm not going to say that they did it. I'm going to say the following things, like the um, defence minister of the country, at the time, a general called Cienfuegos refused to let any of the soldiers from the 27th Battalion speak to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights or to the Independent Experts Committee on Ayotzinapa, refused to let his soldiers talk about what happened that night. The 27th Army Battalion, just outside Iguala, receives communications from a four-tier communication system called C4, which connects the municipal to the state, federal and army communications units. They're all connected, basically. There's messages between the centralised communication in the state government in Mexico City and the army saying whatever happens in Iguala tonight, don't intervene. So they knew but didn't do anything. The third thing is that the only hardware in the area which would be capable of burning 43 bodies would be the army's own crematoriums, which they use for their dead servicemen. And the fourth element to this is that on something like the 8th of December 2014, ashes of one of the 43 students, Alejandro Mora. His ashes were found in the Kukula dump. And, oh. and you know, <laughs> this is the other thing. How did they know they were his ashes? This is what the government says. The Attorney General said, we found some ashes of one of the students in this dump. How did they have his data on file if he had vanished? First, yeah, I... second, up, how did they know? Who tipped them off about this enormous uh, magic fire that never happened? But if it had happened, who told them about it? Like, shape of that cover-up was what offended people and how blatant and, 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 and fake and vile an attempt to pull the wool over an entire country's was. That was the watershed that September in 2014 and uh, I had to quit anyway because of my own uh, just disastrous life at that point but um, there was also this sense that like things were kind of getting a bit real like yeah and you kind of had to be on top of it or something you know. I, I, it's hard it's, to explain like it's, it's like it sounds really fucking matter logical to put it that way but I was like I've kind of done fucking around at that point, and I was like, "Fuck! I can't! I can't be out getting wasted yeah. all the time when things like this are just happening." Like, you know, I just had to step my game up a bit at first, like, yeah. Yeah, I can see.
3: I, I mean, how you might have been putting yourself at risk if you were fucked up all the time well, in that kind of situation, and and not just that, but you might not be. That's a culpability. Obser- you might not be observing it
0: as acutely. Th- those logistical concerns were there. I guess yeah. I meant ethically, actually. I meant, like, in terms of, like, it just, just didn't sit right with me to be having a fucking blast while people younger than me and my age, and some of those faces, the 43 kids' faces, like, some of them, like, in their life stories, like, and their nicknames are burned into my head. I, yeah. You know, I just felt fucking wrong as fuck, like, to be having the crazy fake good times when really bad times were happening to people who, if it weren't for the accidents of birth and social background, were my exact equals in periods, you know?
3: So you you felt like you were, I guess, kind of obscuring what was going on for yourself? and not dealing with what you were seeing around you.
0: Yeah, no one was. like. I mean, you couldn't. like You'd go mad. Yeah. Well, I was, fairly, I was going fairly far with my escapism, you know. And also, when you have yeah. the privileges of foreignness and whiteness and so on, you can go fairly deep in an escape bubble if you want to, and I, I, I certainly had. So uh, yeah. it was both a necessity at a personal and existential level. But it was also kind of an ethical, political demand that I felt from outside that uh, clean my act up, essentially. essentially. I mean, what were your particular vices... In terms oh, just, just, of, just booze, really, and whatever else I could find. Like you know, I like um, I like cocaine a lot, but um, <laughs> uh, booze was is pretty insidious. I it's hard, it's hard <laughs> to get past it. booze,
3: is really hard to, to to get over. The weird thing for me, and I don't know if I've put this in the show, is that like I, but I stopped drinking like ages ago because I felt it wasn't agreeing with my mental health.
0: Yeah,
3: and my physical health and. Um, but I carried on taking drugs for ages after that. <laughs> so I just, I, I just, oh, what well, I like. One say, so
0: one thing at a time. Or yeah, <laughs> what the lads say in the program, it's not. one, yeah. it's one day at a time. Yeah, <laughs> a very, exactly. Terrible thing to joke about. But no. And <laughs> um, did you did you did you make the decision for the for um? Remember that remember that stupid. I I, re- I okay so right. As I said, all that stuff about ethical demand the man and so on, like, I was just thinking about, remember Laurie Penny's tweet about a lot of my friends were giving up smoking because you have to have a long fight ahead of us. Yeah. But when I read that, I was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense at some level. I I, guess, I, that's yeah. the, I felt it was in operation with my own decision to get sober. Um, was that the case for yourself as well? I felt the main thing was I felt
3: when I was drinking, I wasn't being nice to people. Oh,
0: right, yeah, yeah.
3: My tempo would just be like, just, just snap in, in a second. Yeah, then I just feel really sick from all the alcohol.
0: Yeah, you have headaches anyway, don't you?
3: I have bad headaches, and for the last two years, I've had this. Um, I've always had migraines, but what? the last two years, I've had this insistent, like pain in the side of my ear, which is quite bad. It's, it, I mean, it's quite. It's not really raging up at the moment, but it's pretty insistent throughout a lot of, pretty much every day.
0: Just pulsing away.
3: Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 like, the last two days I've had, like, migraines, like, as well as... Yeah. But, um, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, this isn't Mark Maron's WTF podcast. <laughs> no, I, I, I think
0: he's good. He has a great muster.
3: <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I like Mark Maron. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I haven't listened to him in ages, actually. But, no, I think he's, he's done some great interviews.
0: I heard why it originally started was so he could apologise... To once people he had fall with or something like think. <laughs> yeah.
3: That makes sense.
0: My old flatmate was a massive fan of it. And the way he saw this thing made him sound quite great. Yeah. And I understand <laughs> that he has his own his own issues. He's kind of a kind of a Dave Grohl figure, know, Sort of like um aggressively bland niceness. The thing I like that he
3: does is he does Focus his, he rambles on about himself for like ages, but you can skip through it. And then when he does the actual interview, it's very, very focused on his guest, and it's like very personal and stuff. And so I ho- hopefully we're honouring his technique in that kind of way in this this long interview with you.
0: Yeah, I like the like. Well, this is more of a chat than an interview, anyway. Like I mean, that's just, that's the other thing as well. Is whenever I was doing the. Reporting and stuff like that. I'm actually I, I, trying to make it feel as little like an interview as possible, more yeah. the other person because otherwise it's just weird, like you know. You feel like you're yeah, no, yeah, like the active relationship.
3: You've got some great quotes in some of your stories. Uh, one in particular that's jumped out to me. And I realised we've completely deviated. We were going to talk about the, oh, the um the recovery centre. Yeah, but the, I've just I don't want to forget it. There's this one quote that really stuck out to me in your interview with. Jonathan Tavera, oh, yeah, the yeah. forensic cleaner and you know, the only one in Mexico, isn't it?
0: So far, yeah. I mean, there's some guys who are unofficial, but like he's the only one who has the papers that says he's a forensic cleaner, yeah.
3: Just because the stain and odour have gone... You may still have tuberculosis, HIV, hepatitis live at the scene without a deeper chemical intervention. Stabbing sometimes leave blood mixed with percocidal fluid that requires one particular formula. The spatter patterns spread after a shooting require various different preparations. I don't think this is it. I think this is just a really grim bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) he talks in full paragraphs, man. He's he's
3: an incredibly articulate subject. Yeah,
0: he's great. We spent a year and a half with him. Oh wow. Yeah, went to his daughter's birthday party and stuff as well. We we're still friends. He's very private man. Uh, Doesn't have Facebook, but he was over at the photographer de de Darius' house. He was he was at her place, her husband and a new baby. And uh, they send me photos of the day, like you know. So they're like, well, Yeah, you stay. Some subjects you stay pretty close to. Facebook friends with quite a few of the people I interviewed.
3: That's that's really good. So when you're working on this kind of um, long form piece of reportage, where it's you're taking a while to research it, do you sort of return to the person at regular intervals? Do you spend, like, long
0: periods of time with them? We storyboarded it with Donovan. Like, we we, we straight up... He decided the parameters, not us. Okay. Yeah, like, like, always. Like, Benedicta or Ben like. She worked for seven years on a book with a really good Mexican journalist, called the City, Teresa Gonzalez Ramos. They worked on a book about a retirement home for sex workers in Mexico City. Really beautiful yeah. book. Like they spent seven years with those women. So Bene is like super meticulous about the ethics of reporting. Cause she's been all over the world: Uganda, the Coup in Honduras in 2009, the ladies in Mexico City. Donovan with me. And another story we did together about Mexico's first amputee football team. We like, wow. Yeah, they were a great guy. They're really fantastic, but it's <laughs> nice. the, the point. The point of Ben is like she and I were just like super careful. Like it's like it's about the subject. It's not about us at all. We're just the we're the radio master, the radio area whatever, that picks up these frequencies and puts them out. So when we first met Donovan, we bought him a coffee and met a di- at a diner out right by the airport and we were like, so we want to spend as long as we can to do this story, which is about you, your vocation, Mexico's issues with impunity and corruption and lack of due process and uh, your life and your family. Are you okay with that? And he was cause we just, because we were so upfront and so okay that like, we just kind of want him over. And also I'm like, I'm usually pretty taciturn. He is too, so he really appreciated that his interview was like quite quiet. Um, yeah. And it got to the point where we'd done of an overtime where we would interview his entire family at the same time at the table during his daughter's birthday, or we'd meet him travel out to his house in Tesco.
3: That's great.
0: And like in the evenings, and just like just chill but there was one really funny evening like where we realized that how far it had all gone where benny was just taking some pictures of donovan saying goodnight to his daughter which is incredible accent. yeah but i was very very beautiful pictures like very moving like because he loves that kid like meanwhile <laughs> across the hall i'm in his bedroom sitting on the bed beside his wife interviewing her and Benet and Donovan just turned out at the same time and we all just burst out laughing because we were like <laughs> how, how has this happened? like <laughs> like that we were just we were basically just wallpaper to them like they didn't even notice that we were there to the point where you're just like you're sitting up in the bed beside them watching the news like saying oh that's a bit crap isn't it like and then they're like (laughs) (laughs) like telling you goblets of of life (laughs) it it, it gets quite surreal how close you can get to people if you're respectful and really respect is the key of it like i would not have been i didn't force myself into into their family home or force myself into the room like you know
3: it's clear from the piece that you respect him and you're not trying to trip him up or get any
0: kind of he is that's what he is he's like being marvin In reverse, you know what I mean? Like, this is (laughs) mad.
3: Yeah, you've obviously got respect for him. You're obviously um, not trying to get some kind of gotcha quotes out of him. It's a sensitive piece, and you get a good sense of who he is. And, of course, like so many of your other pieces, well, in fact, like your whole sort of outlook... You touch on the fact that he's had times where even for a man with his highly specialized skill set, it's been incredibly difficult for him to find work in Mexico's economic climate. And at one point he says something like, what do I have to do if I don't have my work? I'd have my Bark and Black Sabbath albums. I'm like, oh, I didn't know they collaborated.
0: <laughs> I wish they had.
3: Yeah, Tom didn't laugh at that joke when I made it earlier, and he was texting on his phone when I made it just now, so fuck you, Tom. Two attempts, and yeah, just, <laughs> just completely... Just completely Absolutely seen off.
2: <laughs>
3: oh, I wish they had, though. Like, it would have been rad. What is it he says? Donovan says, some people work to live, and some people live to work, and I do both
0: yeah that was pretty powerful like because you'd see it like some of the days there was one there was a bit after christmas 2015 so it was like january 25th uh, I, i'm losing track of my dates. it was uh january last year 2016 came back from ireland and we met up and hung out we hadn't had a king for a couple of months at that point and uh he, he won't mind me saying that he looked like uh, Jose Mourinho at the end of his Chelsea tenure, he just looked so beat down and <laughs> and 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 I I was feeling the exact same because I I wasn't getting stories and it was just the two of us like we just we we hopped into his car and went for a drive around Mexico City Benny in the back because I gave her the best angles and the mirror pictures we switch around every now and then so she could get better pictures and she's, she's like she's she's very positive she's very sunny-natured and marvelous and fucking hilarious yeah she's, she's incredible like but uh ah, brilliant uh also at that point in time she and her husband diego they just moved into a wonderful place and diego built all the furniture because he's a wood engineer they're about to start trying for a baby and stuff so like you know benny was like full of the joys of life and um <laughs> in the front of the car is donovan like a sad freelancer beside I know they're not freelancers. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the best interviews we did with them because we were both in the same frequency of misery. <laughs> <laughs> I found
3: actually the great quote that stuck out for me when I read your Donovan piece. You know, I keep just in my head picturing Donovan, the nineteen sixties like weird folk musician, just yes. <laughs> picking away.
0: That's this, like, like big the dude he's named after. Yeah, it's like it's such a strange juxtaposition for me. No, oh, really. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's like his parents were huge fans. So they... <laughs>
3: <laughs> Brilliant, but it's it is again a very miserable quote from a miserable freelancer but it's quite poetic he says the police call it liberating the scene when the investigation is finished and the site of the event is open to access again but the real liberation happens when i'm finished cleaning i watch the families come in and breathe the air without the emotional shock of reliving that initial trauma it's gone the scene has been liberated certain events leave an emotional trace in the air something like atoms of trauma after one multiple homicide in colonia del valle for instance there was a vapor in the air the impotence and fear of the victims the fury of the aggressor the pain of everybody involved at the end of a job that wasn't there anymore. that's a true liberation of the scene Yeah, it's kind of reassuring that he sees his work as such a kind of cleansing process for
0: these tarnished areas he, yeah, I think you're you're right because like I've been in in cleanings with him like a few now. I don't know how many cleanings we actually attended because they all kind of blur into one. His cleanup jobs do take the the therapy for the for the space. Yeah, he's doing like an exorcism almost, and you see it in him like he's in there in the space suit forensic garb, and he's like he's in a trance, and it's amazing watch it like he's just in the zone he's nowhere else but there and at the end of it he's like he's all keyed up pure adrenaline like quite a lot like quite a lot of sweat fucking heavy mask and so on but like he's just he's just in another abstracted state like you can just tell that it's someone who is not only exercising a space but he's doing this out of like a sense of personal vocation like it's a very powerful thing to see yeah like, it's almost like spiritual like. like the room the room is spotless absolutely spotless but um yeah there's nothing that all those trauma atoms are gone like you know and it's like he's like a metaphor for the one just man in a failing environment like you know like
3: (laughs) i think it's a really beautiful quote and the fact that he feels so passionately about what he's doing is what makes him such a kind of magnetic character from reading that interview if on the street corner outside your house somebody close to you had been murdered you might never totally disassociate that place you couldn't possibly could you You no he's deeply aware as he explains of the the trauma that the people he deals with are going through and he talks about reading durkheim on suicide and freud on mourning and melancholy (laughs) 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 and i think that's cool that there's a freudian dimension to what he's doing
0: incredible yeah like we, we, we went to see him one evening before he taught, it was, he was teaching self-defense classes that evening at the yeah. community center near his house. He we just went to hang out for the lesson and take pictures of the lesson. I was like, oh, what are you reading? And he's like, oh, yeah, like, just got out some psychoanalysis from the library there. And, I like, wow. <laughs> and he's like, you're a chemist. And he's like, no, but like I have to talk to the victim's family for it. So I figure, like if I understand where they're at, I can make that interaction smoother. And I was like, and, and you know, that interaction which I've seen is, like, maybe three and a half minutes. But he has attention and hours and days of reading gone into trying to inform his ethic of response to them in that moment. Like, he's he's something like a saint. Like, he's pretty cool.
3: It's brilliant, isn't it? Because he provides so many services. There's the, the, the most kind of, on the most superficial level, he makes the place presentable again and decontaminates it. And then there's the level on which he somewhat disassociates the horrible things that have happened there from these places and in which he kind of he saves that environment yeah and on another level there's this human level in which he's totally attentive to the needs of the people grieving
0: yeah it's what freud would call the latent content of his cleaning action goes all the way down into the human experiences trauma (laughs) absolutely
3: so what else do we want to talk about? Do you, do you want to tell us more about this recovery unit, the clinic in Michigan that you visited and wrote about, and how... Yeah, how, how I guess this was formed by your own experiences of addiction recovery.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that was, like, when the guys in Al Jazeera wanted the story, I, I actually I told them up front, like, I was like, I want to do this story because part of it's my story, you know? Like, yeah. It was fucking powerful, man. It was really great. What happened was the, the Pope was visiting Morelia, which is a really beautiful fucking town in Michoacan. Like, it's a lot of pink stone, and the hills are russet, kind of burnt colour at the time that I was there. And, yeah. You know, Huge skies, like, and you pass by a glittering lake to get there. Like, it's really stunning. One of my favorite trips that I ever made while there. And the, the Pope was there to talk, particularly about, about young people. Like, that was really the youth ministry bit. So, that was really interesting because, uh, as well as a war on the poor, it's a war on young people situation in Mexico like the, the whole what was it you call them neats here Not a...
3: yeah I noticed that phrase in your piece yeah uh, well, in, in a couple of pieces you wrote actually Yeah, ninis
0: yeah. so the equivalent of not had an education employment or training in Mexico is uh, ni trabajan ni estudian they neither work nor they study there's an inherent stigma to the idea
3: ninis sounds like a similar kind of class stigmatizing idea to the chav in Britain
0: yes it does Yes, it serves essentially the same function. Yeah, the other insult is Naco, which is pretty racist as well in Mexico because it ultimately its etymology is an indigenous group that has been roundly abused by everyone for the last five hundred years. I hate the word classism. I don't know what word to use instead of it. It's only for work.
3: capitalism, discrimination against people on the basis of their wealth and income is it's just it's what capitalism is. Like I find classism. Because I'm not a fan of it either. I find it to be such a redundant phrase.
0: Yeah, I think like there's just other ways of diagnosing that phenomenon. It, it relegates class distinctions to it, equalizes class and other factors.
3: Yeah, I mean, class isn't an identity that's innate. Yeah, you know, it's created by man-made circumstances.
0: I um, could argue as well that like, in the case of race in general, they don't they don't exist either. The social value attributed to certain differences, yeah, which we wouldn't even be attuned to if the social conditioning wasn't there. That was the weird thing about it. Absolutely. I have no idea what else to say about it. I could really re- <laughs> say a bunch of stupid things. But I don't even realise I'm saying stupid things. But,
3: I'll edit that so it sounds like a bunch of like punchy points from the two of us, but uh, we're both talking sense. So funny, nail it. Uh,
0: <laughs> white lads not being dicks for once. <laughs> um. No, but like um, when I was living back in Mexico, like I just became aware of how intrinsic the accident of your birth in a social system, how that accident was your entire fate. Like you know, in in Morelia, the decision that the Pope made to focus the youth ministry on that city was it was quite poetic. I felt, or at least polemically interesting, in the respect that Michoacan was the first state, that the state that the Mexican government declared war on. You know. It was a state where a lot of the casualties of the drug war the first graphic categories of drug work came to pass, and a lot of those guys were young men, you know? Um, And that's because of this, this phenomenon that I mentioned at the beginning of our chat, where you can turn a chicken on a rotisserie spit for 60 hours a week, and you can make $160 a month and the whole time you're turning that spit, you're looking up at the TV or you're on Facebook, you're on YouTube, and the only thing you're seeing in the materials that are being marketed at you are the banda music, which is like a brass-led kind of gangster rap equivalent from, like, uh, when I say gangster rap, I mean, like, particularly shallow manifestations of it, like, you know, <laughs> like so it's like
3: Yeah, so it's just, like, Mexican fiddy.
0: Yeah, only it's not hip-hop, it's, you're not going to believe this, it's um, polka time Brass led balladry about <laughs> blowing your rivals up with rocket propelled grenades, Kalashnikovs, and having a <laughs> massive armor plated suburban SUV.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> How virile you are as well! This is a massive factor, and the videos is a fucking tremendous. Chaps in all leather cowboy outfits and massive ten gallon hats, strobe <laughs> and like. The hideous gender politics that come into play when there is that valorization in machismo So you can imagine yourself turning this, working in a humid, boiling hot restaurant, watching this on Bandamax, which is the sort of the Mexican MTV for this kind of music. Yeah. Watching that, and you got fuck all options beyond a 3,000 peso a month, $160 dollar a month job. Or you can mm-hmm. skip work one day and hang out on the town square where the day laborers go and skip the first call for the guys who are called out to work in the agriculture foods. You can wait till like 10.30, 11.30 in the morning when the dudes in the big suburbans come and say, okay, do you want... 160 dollars a week and a shiny phone and a shiny gum to wash this corner and you know it, it, it is not a choice you know
3: no well exactly i mean poverty is so endemic to the drug trade i mean it's what drives it by creating the sort of base of labor yeah you know it, when there's mass unemployment when people are living in poverty
0: when people aren't getting proper educations you're not getting education because of intrinsic inequalities and racism in the institutions you know what i mean
3: yeah absolutely then there, there are certain jobs that are offered to you that may not be legal and above board but are certainly better ways for providing for yourself and the people you care about than a lot of the you know if you can even get
0: a job sort of but, jobs you know, that you'd, you'd be offering the, the, the other, the black market is enormous in mexico like i'm looking directly opposite at my bookshelf well top of, i say bookshelf like i mean the top of a piece of furniture in my room but um there's a stack of about 120 or so counterfeit dvds of everything from angelopolis to Belatar to <laughs> fucking uh, colombian gang soap operas I have them all there. They're all... You buy them for seven pesos in the street. Wow. Same as you would buy, like, fucking loose cigarettes or Mars bars from a street vendor. Like, you've got a black economy that's, like, bigger than the actual official economy. No one pays taxes. for You can fall into various points on the spectrum of the black economy. Whether it's selling DVDs or it's chopping up coconut rings for tourists or it's um, working for the bad lads. And one of the bigger what? icons... Like, there's a big shift in the structure of, the, of organized crime came when... She used to with a gentleman narco, you know? Yeah. My, my, uh, a really close friend of mine, Cecilia, she's a photographer and a brilliant music journalist. She grew up in Durango in the north, and she was like, back in the 90s, you know, when she was growing up, she's like, my father was a local teacher in this town.
3: There's been a couple of place names in your articles that I've basically recognised exclusively from Bob Dylan's songs.
0: Yeah, right. So so,
3: so there's Durango, which is the romance in Durango off of Desire. 75, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then Acapulco, there's going to Acapulco (laughs) off the basement tapes.
0: It's not something you should be likely anymore. It it was really funny, like, I'd be texting my dad, like, where he asked to say, I'm going to...
3: uh, going
0: yeah. to Applecoco. Yeah, right. like, oh God, <laughs> him, Like <you>
3: know, <laughs> going on the run.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, yeah,
3: I think that song's just about giving women oral sex. Anyway,
0: <laughs> it is. Yeah, because your man is um, he's not functioning entirely, is he? Well, Bob Dylan. No, he's the speaker of the song, it's like his hardware is not operative.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, <it> is. <laughs> Oh yeah, no there, there are there are there, yeah, there are lines like that, aren't they? Yeah, you know, he sounds a bit bit worn out, bit spent.
0: Uh, no, I meant that he like couldn't get it up anymore, man. Like that. Yeah, no, no, that, that's what I was
3: suggesting as well.
0: There's <laughs> mist sitting on his face for fucking ages. So divorcing the topic entirely. Uh, Cecilia grew up in Durango and yeah. I was a local teacher, you'd have the local priest, the mayor, and you'd have the local narco as well. Um, <laughs> and he was like he was just one of the guys it was fine with, <laughs> the, with the massive neoliberalism of the economy in the 90s and the explosion and demand north of the border the gangs were no longer this sort of rural bellboy figure they became quite viciously oriented towards escaping from the poverty cycle and the icon of the new generation among some people other people hate him there's a guy called Osio Cardeñas, who was out of the Gulf Cartel he changed the look of gang members like he has a military crew cut quite boring looking to be honest with you no bells or whistles broke as fuck sometimes soldier then a foot soldier in a gang then a head of the gang betrayed loads of his friends but all he ever wanted to do was provide for his family so like the moral argument of becoming a gang member or trying to go far in the pyramid scheme that is the cartels because they do operate as a pyramid scheme as well it's really just escaping inequality like you know I, I can't judge these guys
3: Okay, so are there any other particular aspects of the Mexican drug war, of uh, the kind of topics we've been covering today that you'd like to talk about?
0: Gosh, I mean, I suppose, I i, I don't know, I feel like I'm kind of focusing on the negative side of the country, really. But...
3: Alright, what do you love about Mexico? What do you think are the real positives of the society there? I
0: mean, like, the thing is, like, you know, nobody there is just kind of foreign. Like, everyone is fucking <laughs> fascinating i don't know what it is like you, when you're living in mexico city you feel like you're starting on all sides by 30 million simultaneous novels like speeding all around you you know <laughs> on my block the guy who worked at the grocery store slash pharmacy was a long distance runner in his spare time the guy around the food shop was a rastafarian themed wrestler luchador lucha libre. Like the guys at the market. Who turned up every week? We all knew each other's names. We knew each other's like fucking stories. You're just catching up on the soap operas of their <laughs> romantic lives, and I, I don't know. People are just fucking hilarious there. They're great fun. Wow, I really, really like. I really like living there. Just so much. And that's really good now. It's we it like. Well, people are so rad there, man. You're so goddamn rad.
3: That's really good, man. I'm smiling right now, <laughs> hearing of the radness of the Mexican people. And and it's good to know, they're a great, great bunch of lads. Yeah, great bunch of lads, it sounds trite, but like, I mean,
0: shit. I've never seen such a reserve of resilience.
3: Yeah, and whether you're completely fucked up or not, still a great bunch of lads.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I do have that drunk-sense mentality thing, yeah. Uh, even yeah and um, I, I don't know, like yeah, I think it's the resilience like it's whether you're having like a pizza with Lydia Cacho who's telling you hair raising war stories and making the bleakest jokes known to man about them at the same time, like you know like there was some there's something in that like about a yeah. the, the mordant humor as well, like you know like the second something fucking dreadful happens, the guys are faster with the memes over there, and we are like you know what I mean like Mexican meme game is is rapid. <laughs> okay. she's like the the dust had barely settled in the escape tunnel the chapo had dug from south and he'd been converted into a super mario figure it was basically simultaneous the news cover of his escape and his memification (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, brilliant The humour is ridiculous.
3: Mexican political gallows humour must be fantastic. Like, if British people are able to find, on the left at least, obviously most British political humour is terribly unfunny, but within our wing of politics it's obviously good. Like, you know, if if we're able to find this gallows humour, I imagine just the things being even more fucked up means that those (laughs) who can make jokes about that sort of thing
0: are extra funny. There's a, there's a really upsetting looking clown called Grosso. It really looks like a clown after a violent <laughs> remixing of his features. And ah, he's fucking... He's on morning TV, and he's just, just there, like, unleashing tirades against the wealthy and, like, laughing at his own jokes at the same time, but then, like, cutting himself short because he's afraid going to get in trouble or whatever, like, in a parody of the repressive atmosphere you find everywhere. But, but like, the thing is, well, you got to remember, for the last 700 years, 500 years, I'm, I'm starting in 700 years because the Aztecs were bad lads also, but for, like, 500 to 700 years mexico city and its environs has had essentially the same aristocratic structure where the outlying towns of like xochimilco and uh, east of palapa places that these used to be before they became part of the city, same centralized oppression and the same satellite towns of labor this exact same map as it was 700 years ago it was still called Tenochtitlan. what i'm saying is basically like for centuries you've got the same bunch of aristocrats or plutocrats or Nouveau-Riche or fake revolutionaries or coup leaders or whatever in the same static mural of history got the same ruling class just the costumes change or their ethnicities change so everybody else all of us who are down below the fucking historically established 12 families who always run the show in Mexico, the rest of us have, had this, have been practicing our ammunition for ridiculing these people in tandem with that. So, like, the jokes have been sculpted over 700 years, basically. Like, <laughs> the same minority shitting on the majority for centuries. The material rights itself, is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's, it's a great... It's a tremendous place to be. And I've never seen people who are less fazed by hardship, but at the same time, fucking utterly compassionate. You know, like, when we were seeing a story about the most holy shrine in the city, where the Virgin of Guadalupe appeared, I, I noticed that, like... so I talked to, like... Quite middle class people, then slowly spiraled my way down. I structured the article that way, like, starting with the wealthiest and ending with the people who at least, because I want their voice to like resound at the end, yeah. resonate again, resonate again. And what I noticed when I when I got to the people who were like getting behind seventy pesos a day or whatever, like I'm fucking, oh so fucking. It was a woman who had like a, a son who was trans and. It was me and her, and her daughter. When I say someone who's trans, I mean, like, he's intersex, he's, he's, he identifies as both, so okay. but he doesn't use day. All right. I, I, can't, I can't really describe what was so profound about the moment, I guess, but it was just, like, this thing of, like, these people, this family who, like, got by on 70 plus a day, Brian working as a hairdresser, his mother working as a homemaker, or whatever, and how much of a team they were and like that's awesome. thrown together by hardship but how bare for each other they were in a way that even i could see in like a five seven minute interview with them and like how quickly they opened up to me immediately like we got talking and the whole thing just spilled out their whole family history their whole experience of what it meant to be at this shrine or whatever it just all came out and i think that that's just that's a so that's like a that's a, that's a characteristic that's built up it's beautiful yeah like that's like it's It's socially ingrained where the people closest to you are the only thing you have to depend on. It it makes you different, you know? It's not something we have here. It's just not, like, it's not something we have here. We're interested in quite a lot of things and it makes us think that we're more self-sufficient than we are. Whereas, Whereas back in... Back where I used to live, like, you know, you kind of always knew who you could turn to, and you yeah. always know who they can turn to. And that's like, it's pretty magic, you know. So even even as the same bullshit keeps it in the fan century after century, and the same colonial logic, the ones nearest to you, like, you can you, you can still hold on. But then, like, the picture that I'd take away from living there is the tenderness with which Donovan was holding his daughter that evening when we were interviewing him. So that's kind of like yeah. the country in a nutshell, is father, mother, daughter, just there for you to, you know, warm... Funny and open and yet also aware of aware of the cold that that want is like keeping away or whatever you know it's a really powerful play.
3: I think that's that's a really beautiful way to end our yeah, conversation. I Thanks for joining us, Tim. It's been wonderful just listening to it. Just it's just it's yeah. Thanks so much for joining Thank us. you,
0: guys, I'll, I'll um, send my invoice to George Soros in the morning.
3: <laughs> Don't forget Russia.
0: He lives in Russia.
3: <laughs> we all live in Russia. <laughs> Welcome to Russia, Tim. Oh, you live in Russia. You didn't even realize, did you? That's oh. <laughs> <laughs> so good? Heart oh, man, you, you you've told us some beautiful stories, some oh, oh. frightening stories, some yeah, some, uh, yeah, some blood curdling stuff, and and some heartwarming. Oh stuff.
0: yeah, heartwarming is my favourite one.
3: That's <laughs> preferable. But but you ended it on a, on a high note. You ended it on. Some really heartwarming stuff. Yeah. So, man, it's been great. And, uh, yeah, so thanks to Tim, our guest. To Tim, Tim McGowan, everyone. Solidarity, <laughs>
1: Tim. Thank you.
3: Much more intelligible than Shane, as McGowans go, <laughs> e- even <laughs> even on a bad connection. <laughs>
1: thank, Th- thank you for coming on, Tim. Honestly, yeah. Thank, yeah. thank you.
3: Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Tim. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hello. Hello. and welcome to a special—I um, I don't know, like a, a bonus real politics—a
1: yeah. a, a special, special se- selection. Uh, yeah, yeah, a special
3: selection from my uh, collection of literature. In <laughs> Tom's soothing, dulcet tones, we are going to be hearing an
1: important. Political document from yeah. the 1990s. Yeah. Did, when did this come out? Before the 97 election, or after? Just after they got I elected. look a look inside. Uh, 96. 96. Uh, you know, a year before the general election. This is called <laughs> Tony Blair: A New Statesman's Special Selection from New Britain. My vision of a young country. <laughs> uh, this is this is going to be some. Some tight, some uh, heavy dialectic... <laughs> it's going to be some good shit, man. Oh, man. Well, Tony at gonna... his best. Well, we're going to skip past the introduction that starts by saying Tony Blair is the most significant figure to have taken the British political stage since Margaret Thatcher. Damn
3: right he is. Damn right. Him and Margaret Thatcher on the same level. <laughs> Russia. Oh, Russia, man, absolutely.
1: We've got, okay, right, we got... Okay, this is... Stats chapter, My Kind of Britain, My Britain. He, he describes what this text aims to... His uh, vision. His vision, Of exactly. a young country. <laughs> a new Britain. A new Britain. This is a book about Britain, its past, its future, and above all, its people. <laughs> that, that, Most that, that, importantly. Incredible. It is motivated by a simple idea, that we have the potential to create a much better future for ourselves and our children, but we'll only do so if we work together with new purpose, new direction. And new leadership. Oh, I wonder who is referring to there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gordon Brown. <laughs> he is um, the new leader of the opposition. <laughs> yeah, like, he is the leader of the opposition now, isn't he? Is, he is. Yeah.
3: What Gordon but... Brown?
1: <laughs>
3: is Brown the de facto leader of the opposition now? <laughs> Blair had had his, uh, his, his day. Oh, sorry, that's just reminded me. I was going to say his day in the sun, and that's reminded me of that great Tony Benn quote. Everybody who leaves the Labour Party has their day in the
1: sun. <laughs> Slugs. I, absolutely. I was brought up to form my views on the basis of what I saw around me, what I read, what, what I learnt from friends and colleagues. In other words, to study reality rather than theory. Okay <laughs> Reality and theory, of course, diametrically opposed. Wow. It is a binary choice between the two. Today, as I travel around Britain, I see many people with great strengths. We have some of the world's best scientists and engineers, business people and teachers, artists and sportsmen and women.
3: Artists, Oasis, sportsmen and Chris women. Evans, um, Ocean Colour Scene... <laughs> young Simon Hedges. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, can you imagine Young Simon Hedges back Simon in the run-up to the '97 general election, just kind of him wearing you know you, the shirts, the you, music, the kind of you know. You've read the uh, extracts from his memoirs, but he's tweeted out have you. My word, really? Does he describe his days back then? Oh, well, yeah. Well, I, have, I will have to get into <laughs> that. that certainly, Simon, I will stuff. be a fan of that. Oh,
3: and we'd like to thank Simon Hedges for oh, yes. designing the artwork for our
1: episode on big Labour shit. It was good. It was very good. Thank you for that, Simon. We have fine traditions of tolerance, openness, sticking up for the underdog, and British governments have often been at the forefront of changes that have then been followed elsewhere. We are ready to take bold steps. (laughs) Colonialism. Slavery. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, this is... I'm just shocked by just... We're literally only into the like second paragraph and there's just so much right-wing hawkishness in there. It's just like... <laughs> yeah. It's so like, it's all about it's the about Progressive patriotism. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's Britain's
3: <laughs> role in the world has been good. You know, it's always, it's been good. You know, or at the very least, it is not the role of a politician to give a history lesson. <laughs> just... That's not my perspective, but that is a perspective a lot of people have and I dare say Blair didn't want to uh, take on imperialism in a big way. Where, where are we?
1: <laughs> Russia! <laughs> when it, when it you know, it's, yeah, exactly. The perfect kind of time for them, just shouting Russia. Russia, <laughs> Russia! We're ready to take bold steps when they are justified. This is why everything's good, folks. But all across Britain today, I also see enormous untapped potential. Sometimes there are simple things that bring it home. Children in classes too big for them to learn properly, young people in their 20s who have never had a job, Trains vandalised, city centres clogged up.
3: Those youths doing the vandalism (laughs) and the
1: graffitis. (laughs) The the countryside spoiled
3: Ah,
1: Windmills (laughs) Elderly people unable to enjoy their retirement Because they live in fear Political institutions so remote That they no longer seem to serve the people But to serve only themselves
3: Oh well that of course
1: got a lot better under Tony Blair People really, their trust in politicians (laughs) Really shot them There is a deeper sense too In which our potential remains just that People want to be proud of Britain but they have lost confidence. They want us to be strong, but they sense we are losing an old identity without finding or developing a new one. Right, okay. It's the immigrants. No, of course that wasn't his argument at that point. It is now. They know in their hearts we cannot do this by looking back. They know that the riskier, but ultimately more satisfying search for a new future is necessary, but they want to be convinced that we can keep the best of the past as we move forward. Good stuff. This, thank god Christ, this, that's, at least he breaks it up into enough chapters to yeah. bite the size of whoever's unlucky <laughs> enough to delve into this my ambitions for Britain are defined by this gap between potential and performance we are a country with a great past but too often we seem to live in it rather than learn from it changing that mindset so that we are masters of change rather than victims of it is what I mean when I talk about making Britain a young country right It is a country convinced that its best times can lie ahead. Fired with ambition but improved by idealism, compassion and justice.
3: People can't see how I'm just nodding moronically at all of this <laughs> I'm just tuning out. Like, Blair speak is, it's, it's just a flattening out well. of the political discourse. Blattling. In fact, one of the chief reasons that people lost trust in politicians, just the fact that they yeah. seem
1: to speak in this sort of unintelligible, managerial bollocks speak. Yeah, it makes me sometimes just want to, I, I will get to the end of this chapter, but I just want to throw it into the bin right next to me and pick up instead what is sat right next to us as well. Uh, Tony Benn's A Future for Socialism. Now, this is a Uh, a real vision in here. This is some actual visionary stuff. On the back it says, For Tony Benn, the 21st century should see the return of socialism as the best vehicle for democracy in Britain. He calls for privatisation of the monarchy. Two new houses of parliament. It's just a shame we're focusing on a new Britain. You see the difference between his and Blair's approaches in how
3: Blair is just like, we need to create a new future in which people can realise their potential and their destiny and uh, opportunity and aspiration. And Tony Benn is just like, yeah, we'll privatise something, but it'll be the fucking monarchy.
1: (laughs) And then he carries on to say, (laughs) oh my God, oh my God. People used to say that the Conservatives were cruel but efficient. (laughs) Labour, they said, was caring but incompetent. That was foolish, yeah, for many reasons. The
3: Tories were not cruel, let's get out <laughs> of the way. Like, the Tories
1: are unimpeachable, they are bang on about all the things. <laughs> the Conservatives have shown themselves to be monumentally incompetent. More important, we cannot afford the costs of mass unemployment and poverty. We cannot escape the crime that comes from despair. Britain cannot be strong and confident when the majority of its people are insecure and fearful. We live as one nation and must act as one too one nation (laughs) conservative. social justice the extension to all of a stake in a fair society is the partner of economic efficiency and not its enemy we do not have to choose between a less divided society and a more productive Mm. economy we can and must seek both. To do so, we need to work in radically new ways. We live in a world of dramatic change, and the old ideologies that have dominated the last century do not provide the answers. So, uh, so, mm, yeah, like, yeah. so yeah, public there ownership. A... <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> all out the window, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell. So you had this, but you just never bothered to open and actually read what is on these pages. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just my parents' bookshelf. Yeah. I,
3: I just I thought, it, I, you know, it might be... Funny. <laughs> <It's>, yeah, <laughs> to read it at
1: some point it stunned us really, kind of, because it it started out as some kind of a joke, but it's just basically it's him going, yeah, you know what what the Conservatives were doing in the 80s, you know, they had it right.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah um, like they had a pretty decent point. Pretty much like the uh, Labour Party political broadcast from 1997 <laughs> that we watched, where yeah, yeah in the Tories' equivalent one, John May just like, oh, Labour and the Tories aren't actually the same, you know? It's like, oh, really? Oh, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is. When, when, people, when people talk about Labour being into silence, Tory literally. light, and how there, there were, at least there was at one point, a little difference between two main parties, it's not fucking exaggerating. We're <laughs> <laughs> in a
1: really narrow <laughs> spectrum of ideas, that sort of centrist politics. We live in a world of dramatic change, and the old ideologies that have dominated the last century did not provide the answers. They just do not connect with a new world of global competition, Mm. abrupt technological advance, a revolution in the role of women, new environmental danger, and widespread demands for a more empowering and open form of politics. But there is a big idea left in politics. It goes under a variety of names. Stakeholding One Nation Inclusion Community But it is quite simple (laughs) Is it? (laughs) It is that no society Can ever prosper Economically or socially Unless all of its people Prosper Unless we use the talents And energies of all the people Rather than just the few Unless we live up To the ambition To create a society Where the community Works for the good Of every individual And every individual Works for the good Of the community In the 1980s The Conservatives Effectively presented themselves As the party of the majority in Britain, they claimed to offer hard working families the chance to get on, the power to control their lives. They talked about popular capitalism and promised an economic miracle in which income and wealth would trickle down from people at the top and benefit the rest of us. Today, that claim seems absurd. Millions of people fulfilled their side of the bag and they bought houses, a set up businesses, changed jobs, bought personal pensions. Yet the government did not honour its pledge. Taxes have been raised 23 times, mortgage repossessions are running at a thousand a week. Pensions regulation has been shown to be inadequate. And, uh, instead of helping the majority get, uh, God, this is... It's literally yeah. draining to read. Like, it, it's such... Just so like, skip
3: to another part of it. Like, yeah. let's, find, let's find
1: some good shit. Like What else has he got to say? The Radical it's Coalition. Co- yeah, radical? Yeah. In 1945, the people of Britain elected a Labour government which rebuilt this nation. We now step up our attempts to rebuild the bond of trust with the people so that we may take on the task of building a new Britain. This is a good moment to look back to 1945 and to look forward to the future. Then, as now, we faced enormous changes in the global economy and in society. Then, as now, Labour spoke for the national interest and offered hope for the future. The Tories spoke for sectional interest and represented the past. Then, as now, Britain needed rebuilding and the voters turned to Labour to take on that task because then as now, the people knew that market dogma and crude individualism could not solve the nation's problems.
3: Well, I mean, I mean that's probably um, one of the more left-wing bits in this. Yeah, you know, criticising market dogma. I mean, obviously this thing's riddled with market dogma, but he does acknowledge that that's not the sole
1: kind of way to go forward. <laughs> I want to honour the 1945 generation to learn the lessons of their victory and... Spirit their of
3: 45.
1: <laughs> ...and their achievements, and to set out how the enduring values of 1945 can be applied to the very different world today. So that's the Radical Coalition, and he's also got chapters on new labour. <laughs> <Ooh, laughs> let's obviously... see what he's saying about the difference between new and old labour. He starts with a little caption, which is a quote from a speech that he gave to the party conference in Blackpool on 4th of October 19- 1994. And it says, Parties that do not change die, and this party is a living movement, not a historical monument.
3: that sounds like Owen Jones where he's just like yeah if Labour doesn't do such and such that I think is right it's doomed (laughs) like it's gonna Die. There's, no, there's not going to be a Labour Party anymore.
1: <laughs> I came into Parliament in 1983. The name of this chapter is called Accepting the Challenge. Okay. He's kind of, this is the road, the, the road to leadership. Now you know. <laughs> Good
3: MPs came into Parliament in 1983. Good MP for uh, Islington North. <laughs> <laughs>
1: those were dark days. They required great courage and determination from our new leader then. We got those qualities in full measure. I'm guessing... He's, of course, complimenting the fucking Labour leader at the time, Neil Kinnock, who we are a big fan of on The Real Politics. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're not
3: trots, Neil. Please don't beat us up. You've been listening to The Real Politics podcast, where we have been talking about Mexico and its war on drugs. So we'd we'd like to thank Tim, who you can find on Twitter. At Tim McGavin, uh, Westminster correspondent Kieran Morris, who you can find on Twitter at Hipster Scumbag. Got Tom Foster here.
1: Yeah, wow, well, that was. T
3: underscore Foster 94. Yeah. And I'm Jack Fred Reed at Uber Coca. Yeah, thank you.
1: Take care.
2: Bye. <laughs> Alguien que te ayude a ti Al final tú ganarás Luchando así siempre hasta el fin Al final tú ganarás Jugando así más y mejor Oh, 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 piensa que tú puedes jugar a ganar Ya verás, ya verás al final Te sueño de una vez al final tú ganarás luchando así siempre hasta el fin al final tú ganarás jugando así más y mejor Oh, oh, oh piensa que tú puedes jugar a ganar ya verás ya verás al final ese día vendrá aquí y podrás realizar Este sueño de una vez Al final tú ganarás Luchando así siempre hasta el fin Al final tú ganarás La suerte a tu lado estará Al final tú ganarás Luchando así siempre hasta el fin Al final tú ganarás